This is John K. Wilson and Rachel Fields with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. GOP lawmakers in the state's Building Commission rejected every single building infrastructure project in Governor Evers' budget last week, ranging from work at correctional facilities to the UW system to upgrades to state veteran affairs facilities. WKOW reports that Senate Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMayhew says the reason for the rejections comes down to rising inflation costs, saying that faulty calculations could cost taxpayers unnecessary cost overruns. But Evers says that his infrastructure recommendations would be one of the strongest investments for Wisconsin's facility infrastructure to date, saying it would provide 45,000 jobs and an estimated $6.8 billion economic impact. The State Department of Justice has announced that they've reached a settlement agreement with a northern Wisconsin factory farm over multiple pollution violations. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that Kennard Farms, which operates 16 farms with around 8,000 cows across Kewanee and Door counties, had improperly spread manure and failed to eliminate failed to timely submit engineering evaluations and annual nutrient management plan updates to the state. Kennard Farms has an open lawsuit against the State Department of Natural Resources over the limiting of the size of their herds and the mandate to monitor groundwater for contamination. In all, Kennard Farms has agreed to pay the state around $215,000 and has agreed to upgrade two waste storage facilities and a feed storage area. Madison Metro School District spokesperson Tim Lamons is suing the school district to prevent a complaint filed against him by his staff from being released through an open records request. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that back in December, an unnamed local TV station filed an open records request asking for copies of any emails sent by district staff containing the name of the station or one of its reporters. One of those emails, it turns out, is an unreleased complaint against Lamons. That complaint was originally filed in October of last year and was resolved by December when the district found that the accusations were without merit and took no action against Lamonts. The lawsuit says that releasing the complaint would bring social and potentially financial harm to Lamonts and that the potential harm outweighs the public benefit of the document's release. In all, the lawsuit looks to block two out of the nearly 100 records the district intended to release. Meanwhile, the district has been sued for late and delayed records requests at least five times in the past 18 months. The city's planning division will be holding an open house on Wednesday night to discuss upcoming plans and projects from Madison's northeast side. Madison's northeast area plan is defined by the area between I-90 and Packers Avenue. At Wednesday's open house, city officials will discuss the proposed Northeast Area Plan with topics including the proposed Imagination Center at Rindall Park, PFAS treatment at Well 15, noise mitigation from the Dane County Airport, and the Starkweather Creek Watershed Flood Study. The open house will begin at 6 p.m. this Wednesday in room D1630 at Madison College's Truax Main Building. And now on to today's top stories. Anti-F-35 protesters gathered at both Truax Airfield and the state capitol for a day of action today, calling for the jets to not come to Madison and to declare the airfield a place of peace. WORT reporter Helena White was on the scene today to watch the tense scene unfold. For activists opposed to the F-35 fighter jets coming to Madison, today was a day of action. 
About 40 members of Safe Skies Clean Water Wisconsin, Code Pink and Midwest Catholic workers gathered in the pre-dawn hours outside the entrance to the 115th Air National Guard base at Truax Field, holding signs, singing peace songs, and physically obstructing vehicles from entering the base. Keep your eyes on the prize without the F-35. The military selected the 115th Air National Guard to receive F-35 military jet planes as soon as this May. There is controversy surrounding these jets due to the noise they make, reportedly four times louder than the F-16s that have been at the base, PFAS pollution from the base, and the risk of making Madison an enemy target. Most cars respected the protesters blocking the entrance. And here, you can hear them talking to the driver of one car. Here comes the car. And it's going, turning in. It's one of the... We don't want you to. We want to stop war. We're here to say no to war. We don't... We don't... I understand. I hope you do. But we don't want you to commit assault. I don't know. I want you to do it without committing assault. That's all that I want for you. And we want to say no to war, that's why we're here. The man says he wants to go to work. Then, then walk in. Then walk in. Then walk in. He needs to Don't pay his bills. Don't on your way to work. That will not support your family and you know that. You know that. Driving over a person with a vehicle, that, that, this is a weapon. And I know it seems that you're about to and I don't want you. I don't want you to do that. That makes sense. It does. It makes perfect sense. We're not going to move because we're here to say no to war. You're part of something larger. And the car is backing up and driving away. But the scene became a lot more tense with some drivers more determined to enter. Here comes a truck, a large white GMC truck. Oh, and it is not going to stop. And it's going straight past me on the sidewalk almost, and people are jumping out of the way, and it's going through. Oh, here's another truck. Someone is down on the ground getting back up again. The truck had inched forward and knocked a protester to the ground. Several people standing in front of the car. This is the song. This is the song. F-25 Super Heavy Duty. Several protesters stood in front of the truck with their hands on the hood, forming a human barrier to the base entrance. More cars coming in the outdoor. The, it's, the truck is inching forward. And it's backing up. And it's driving off. Watch out, people. Danica is the national co-director of Code Pink, a woman-led national anti-war organization that formed in 2002. She was in town to support local anti-F-35 efforts. I've been working with the people in Burlington, Vermont, where the F-35s currently are, are trained, and they describe it as, uh, you know, incredibly loud. It causes a bunch of no uh, noise pollution. Uh, they also had to knock down a bunch of homes because of the noise, uh, and Vermont is currently in a housing shortage. And definitely uh, similar situations would happen here in Madison if the training were to move here.
People waiting to enter the base for work declined to comment about the F-35s for WORT, but Tim spoke about why he opposes the F-35 jet. It's horrible for peace, uh, and it's an enormous waste of taxpayer money. It'll cost $1.7 trillion over the course of its lifetime. That money could forgive all student debt in this country. That money could fund so many urgent priorities. But instead, they're bringing a nuclear bomber to Madison, Wisconsin, against the wishes of the people, so they can make more money for Lockheed Martin and not keep anybody safer. This is putting Madison on the map as a nuclear target, and we're here to keep Madison safe, to protect the children, to protect the air, and to protect the water. Mid-morning after the dawn action at the airbase, about 40 anti-F-35 activists went to the state capitol to persuade Governor Tony Evers to cancel the F-35s and change the mission of the airbase to peacekeeping and public safety. Several were ready to get arrested, among them Tom Boswell of Safe Skies Clean Water, who spoke to a representative from the governor's office. Hi, I'm Tom Boswell. I'm Dave. Safe Skies Clean Water Coalition. We sent a letter to Maggie Gal uh, on February 8th, an uh, email letter asking for a meeting with the governor. I think Francesca Hong, one of our state representatives, also requested uh, about a month before that that the governor meet with us. Some of us are planning to stay here until we get an answer to our question, until we get a, a, a date on the calendar on when we're going to have that meeting between the governor and the community to talk about the F-35 and the new mission for the airbase, okay? Gotcha. Well, I can flag for our team and see what they can do, but unfortunately, most people aren't available currently. Um, so if you leave a constituent registration form you know, here. I, you know, I get emails from the governor every day. I get the news releases, and I'm sure you must have uh, time to meet with thousands and thousands of people on the north and east side of Madison who are concerned about this issue. Mm -hmm. And the jets are uh, scheduled to come uh, sometime in May. We don't have a lot of time to wait. The governor was not forthcoming. Boswell believes that Senator Tammy Baldwin and Governor Tony Evers have the power to stop the F-35s from coming to Madison. Boswell was at the Capitol to prevent nuclear-capable and uh, military jets in the middle of a, of a low-income, high-density community on the north and east side of town, uh, as well as, uh, of course, pollution of our water for over a half-century now. We have 59 schools and daycares within uh, three miles of the airport, and those kids are, are going to suffer immensely. It's so difficult for them to learn now for a variety of reasons, and now their classes are going to be disrupted seven times a day by these awful, boondoggle, horrible, inexcusable F-35 jets. The group of activists obstructed the entrance to the governor's office while the raging grannies and other protesters sang their support. As of airtime, no arrests were made. This is Helena White reporting from a day of action in opposition to the F-35 fighter jets coming to Madison for WORT local news.
The spring general election will take place next Tuesday, and today we continue our coverage of all the Alder districts on the ballot with a trip to the north side in District 18. Charles Miadzi has represented the district since 2021 and is running to retain his spot on the council next week. Miadze spoke with WORT producer Nate Wegehout earlier today to talk about why he decided to run for re-election. The 2023 spring general election is just about a week away, and this year there are 14 older districts appearing on the ballot. One of those districts is District 18 on the north side of Madison, containing Cherokee Marsh and the Sherman and Mendota Hills neighborhoods. Older Charles Miadze has represented District 18 since 2021 and is running for re-election next week. He joins me now by phone. Charles, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, you're welcome, Nick. And now, just to begin, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Who who are you? I'm Alder Charles Miadze, and I'm honored to serve as the Alder of the 18th District, beautiful uh, North Side. Uh, this is my home. I'm a single father of three wonderful children. I'm a proud member of Steelworker 904L, and I work day shift at Continental Factory in Sun Perry. Been there for 25 years, and I'm also a union steward and also a trainer at the plant. Now, Charles, you are just about finishing up your first term as alder here. Why are you running for re-election of District 18? Well, during my first term, I've been a fighter for the North Side, and I've gotten a lot of things done. The Ramish Farm, Body Worn Camera Pilot, Shore Drive uh, Railroad, and the reconstruction of Canutson uh, Drive. And I'm running for re-election because there's so much more to do, and we can't go back. I want to finish the Raymond Farm Project, which I started, get body-worn camera city uh, wide and also improve, improve uh, public safety. And I want to make sure public safety is fair and the North Side is actually uh, benefit from it. And I want to protect our environment. And now, Charles, taking a look at the city of Madison here, what would you say are the most pressing issues facing the city that you would want to address with another term as older? As a single father of three kids, uh, one of my biggest thing was actually to own my first home. That was a game changer for me and my kids, which was really, really important. I believe in the city here, we definitely need to build generational wealth, not through just the city, but actually uh, through this country. And to be able to champion the Ramish farm is huge, right? It's important to actually have generational wealth for working families that are struggling a bit, firefighters, uh, uh single parents that are, that are struggling. So to have generational wealth, it's important to own the first house. But I want to actually focus, too, on public safety, public transportation as a BRT rolls out, making sure that it's going to be equitable throughout the city. And like I said, environmental protection. But uh, uh, lastly, too, to build stronger families through youth employment. And now I want to take a look at a couple uh, key issues facing the city right now. And you mentioned housing there, so let's start there. What sort of key initiatives would you like to see here in Madison to bring more affordable housing and more affordable home ownership to the city of Madison? Well, when I f- was first elected, I talked about land banking. I think it's important that the city does more land banking. I was hoping that they would actually do that with a Hooper uh, uh, site in order to land bank that. So... I do think that it's important that we have, uh, that people do have their the housing, like the Ramish farm, made the plot sizes smaller so that it will be uh, more affordable for folks. There's folks up in uh, Kennedy Heights right now 
paying market rate rent over a thousand dollars. So it's important to actually have this housing, especially on the uh, Ramish farm, especially uh, 76 single family homes, uh, which my opponent fought me for last year. So it's important that this actually goes through for the people on the north side that want to own their first home. And now another key issue that's facing Madison right now, and another one that you sort of mentioned there, was public transit. And now bus rapid transit set to take off next year. Network redesign set to start up later this year. How how do you feel about those two projects? Well, um, when I was first elected, I talked about transportation on the north side. A 15-minute ride downtown by car takes over 45 minutes. So I do agree that um, we needed to come up with a new uh, initiatives as far as, you know, even the BRT. But I'm not too fond about it. It's just the way that it was rolled out. Um, we needed to ask people where they needed to go versus uh, assuming where they needed to go. I, as an alder of this district that's been a fighter about transportation, I asked to be on the Transportation Commission. Um, I had to fight to make sure that it went to uh, Medota Mental Health, which should have been a no-brainer given that mental, uh, mental health is, is important in this city. And the workers that work there, making I had to make sure that it didn't go down school road because of the kids. And also I had to fight to make sure that we put in a route going to uh, pick and save and to witness food access is huge. So just the way it was rolled out, and I will continue to fight for uh, fair uh, transportation on the north side because there's still people complaining about access to certain places, like the, even the Cherokee uh, condominiums. There's a lot of elderly people that actually uh, live there. So it's important that we have transportation that's equitable for everybody. Understand that the trade-off was people walking, but I am concerned about people walking a long distance just to be able to uh, catch our public transit, which should be for everybody. And now the final issue that I want to take a keen eye at here is one that's more handled at the county and even the federal level, but has a lot of implications for the entire city of Madison and especially District 18 there. And that is the F-35 fighter jets, which are set to land in just a couple of months here. What what are your, your thoughts on the F-35 jets? My thoughts on the F-35 jets is, so when I was first elected, they had a presidential work group, which I asked to be on to address any kind of uh, issues with environmental, especially on the Ramish farm site that was going to be possibly affected by sound there. And what I did was made sure that we put sound mitigation. So outside of the corridor that might be impacted by the F-35s, the noise, we actually had sound mitigation on this plot of land. The F-35s are coming. I think it's important that we invest into sound mitigation people that are concerned about the sound of the F-35s. So I will continue to fight for what my constituents want, uh, which is uh, sound mitigation. Uh, but one thing I want to definitely say is uh, I am honored as a father that has a daughter that's in the National Guard that I actually respect our military that actually give up their lives to, for our freedom. Now, Charles, let's take an eye at District 18 there. Now, what are a few issues facing your specific district? What have you heard from potential constituents? So I've knocked thousands of doors, and what I've heard, I've championed most of them, right? So when I knocked doors, I heard about the Troy Drive Bridge. I'm thankful that we got $3.2 million uh, to take care of that. Um, when I knocked doors, I heard about Knutson Drive it being a challenge for a lot of people because the road is so narrow. So I worked with city staff in order to get a sidewalk, curb, and gutter, which now has been implemented through a, a program that people are not going to be assessed for that. So they're ecstatic about 
having that project uh, come to fruition. But even the schools, reaching out to the schools, I asked them, where are the barriers at? And uh, I was told by a lot of these schools along my district, because I have a lot of uh, elementary and middle schools, that there are kids that are coming to their school, elementary schools, not being prepared. So I've had city staff working diligently about uh, early childhood uh, programming, which uh, I guess one of the places was Eastside Community Center was thought to have early childhood, which they don't. So city staff is working diligently to tackle that issue. Uh, another issue was youth programming, right? Needing something for our youth to do in our district. And I'm glad to say this summer we're rolling out youth working with Sustained Dane, and kids will be getting paid $17 an hour in order to learn about sustainability, which is huge in our district, youth programming. So that is another huge thing. And uh, also, too, I don't know if you heard about this, but $250,000 is going to be used to give to uh, a union cab. The problem with transportation with paratransit is that paratransit comes out probably, you have to schedule an appointment probably a day in advance. Now with this $250,000, we'll be able to buy vehicles that when somebody's with disability, they can call and get a ride right away rather than waiting. So being able to serve our, our uh, people with disabilities is huge here on the north side. So those are a lot of things I've been hearing at the doors when I'm knocking the doors. I've been talking with Alder Charles Miadze, who is running in next week's election to continue representing District 18 on the Madison Common Council. Now, that election will take place on April 4th. Uh, Charles, thank you again so much for talking with me. Uh, You're welcome. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to local news on WORT. I'm your host, John K. Wilson, here with co-host Rachel Fields. Thank you for joining us. As spring eventually comes to Wisconsin, the morning and night air will start to fill with trills, peeps, croaks, and grunts. That's all thanks to the 12 species of frogs and toads that call Wisconsin home. Back in 1984, concerned about declining amphibian numbers, the State Department of Natural Resources put out a call for volunteers to help identify the croakers near them. The annual frog and toad survey has grown over the years and now includes over 100,000 sites across Wisconsin. With the survey kicking off in just a few weeks, 8 o'clock buzz host Brian Standing spoke with Andrew Badgey, a conservation biologist with the DNR, about this long-running effort at Citizen Science. So how does one become a volunteer frogger? Well, it's, uh, I guess it's uh, as easy as um, going to our website, and, and which is at the Wisconsin Frog and Toad Survey, if you just do a simple search online, and just kind of reading up about our, our different volunteer opportunities. We have three separate ones, and then uh, reaching out to uh, our coordinators, which is uh, me and my colleague, Rory Pulaski, and then we can kind of help fit you in where, where we have need and, and where people are interested. Now, what does the traditional frog survey job entail? What are people signing up for? Well, the traditional survey, which is which is our, our longstanding one, is kind of a driving survey where we have 10 sites kind of in a fairly compacted area where volunteers go and listen for frogs. So these are typically roadside or um, kind of park park wetlands, um, stuff like that, where there, there are feasible parking spots. And so volunteers would go out for three separate nights 
Uh, and each night they would go and survey um, all 10 sites and listen for the frogs and, and, and toads and, and record what species they're hearing in addition to the relative kind of abundance levels uh, of what they're hearing. So that, that way we can get, the DNR can get a better idea of what's going on across the state and, and what the trends and, and stuff like that look like. What time of day are people going out? Uh, volunteers are, are going out uh, after, after sunset, so uh, usually kind of in the spring and summer that can be anywhere between seven and nine o'clock at night and, and usually kind of try and wrap up around midnight or so. Now, uh, this has been a very snowy spring. Does that delay the survey or is it important to do them at the same time every year? Well, we, we, we've talked about this because the springs, the, the way the protocol had been set up was, was prior to all, all these kind of climate fluctuations and stuff we've had. So we do, we do try and stick to our traditional windows. However, you know, for, for parts of every once in a while, um, like maybe this year and even last year for especially the more northern counties in the state, we've we've kind of granted a couple extra, uh, a week or two extension just so um, volunteers are actually out there listening for frogs versus, you know, listening, listening at ice-covered ponds and wetlands. Now, what does it take to identify a frog? I mean, uh, do you need special training or is it relatively easy to figure out who's saying what out there? I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it depends on the person, but I think uh, usually, usually it's pretty easy because unlike birds where you have upwards of 200 different species flying through the state at any point in time during the, the summer, frogs only have 12 species. And on top of that, frogs only have one classic breeding call to identify. So you really aren't listening for 12 different calls versus, uh, you know, upwards of 200 plus. Um, and birds also kind of have more than one feature call too. So, so people pick it up pretty quickly in your experience? Uh, yeah, yeah. Usually, usually they do. And, and we, not, not all the frogs are calling at every time at during every, um, survey too. So we, we typically tell newer, newer volunteers to focus more, at least on their first survey to focus on the early spring calling species, such as wood frogs, chorus frogs, spring peepers, and, and leopard and pickerel frogs and stuff like that. So, and then they can kind of work their way up too. So it's, it's more additive um, throughout the season. And you're also doing a phenology survey. Uh, what information are you asking volunteers to collect in that? Phenology surveys, this, is, this one kind of caters more to people who have a, a wetland or uh, lake or shoreline on their property and they can just kind of walk out on their deck every night or, or at, at, at the very, very least, uh, once, once a week and just kind of record the, the types of calls that they're, the, the species and the calls that they're getting. And that way that can kind of help the, the DNR and, and other researchers, uh, in the region get a better handle on, um, how changing climate is, is really, uh, affecting our frog breeding kind of calendar and, and how it's affecting the species in general. So, so again, that, that's kind of, that's a that's a survey that's a lot a lot less mobile and people can um, if if they you know have the ideal situation where there's a wetland just outside the back door or in their front yard they can just listen from their home. And so, how does the DNR use the data collected by all these volunteers? What happens after people report that? Well, we we do our best to pump out an annual summary with uh, with the traditional survey data, and so that comes in a form of just kind of a. a a snapshot of, of what occurred that year in addition to um, that data goes into kind of a longer term graph and we look at each one of the different species and kind of kind of see what's been going on and we share that with volunteers and then the, and, and, and the goal is to kind of use that data and, and, and that's kind of a snapshot 
picture of what's been going on. However, recently we're, we've decided to work with UW-Madison, and we're in the very beginning stages of it, but we're going to do kind of a more of a, a rigorous statistical analysis with one of their PhD students. So that's that's really exciting, and then we can kind of see what's going on kind of in different corners of the state and, and, and just look at it a, a lot more intensively uh, at what's happening with these, with each of the species throughout the state and over time. And what can we say about the overall health of frog and toad species in Wisconsin? Are, are they doing better, worse? Well, I would say um, there's it's kind of all over the place. Some of them are quite stable, like the the wood frog, chorus frog, and then you have other species like leopard frogs, mink frogs, pickerel frogs, who have who have kind of shown a, a downward trend downward trend for about the first twenty years of the survey, and then they've kind of stabilized over the last twenty years or so. So that that's kind of what we've been seeing. And then there are species like the the bullfrog and the spring peeper who that that we've been noticing uh, slight increases over over the years and stuff as well. So and and interestingly, the American bullfrog is is a native species of Wisconsin, but it, it also we also think that the uh, regulations in place kind of limiting bullfrog harvest have actually kind of helped that species rebound since the 1950s when a lot of those populations did decline from overharvest. And what role do frogs play in the ecosystem, frogs and toads? What's, uh, why are they important? Well, they, they do a lot of things. First and foremost, they're a, a great kind of education uh, awareness tool because most people grow up or, or most people who, who have access to wild places in the state do get hands-on experiences with, with frogs and toads, and, and they're very charismatic in that way where you can, where you can handle them and gain that, gain that experience. And so they really do kind of serve as an ambassador for wildlife in general, but they also um, are, are, they're not super low in the food chain, but they're very abundant. Uh, and they also kind of feed the, the more charismatic species further up, such as, uh, you know, raccoons and, and a bunch of bird species and, and, and a lot of other animals and stuff too that, that um, I could, I could name. But, and then on top of it too, then if you go into some of the more tropical parts of the, of, of the world, a lot of these species, um, we're, we're just learning um, about all the different medical advances that can help human health care with and stuff, too. So uh, it's important for us to keep, keep them around because we just don't know what they can um, help us with on our health as well. All right. We've been speaking with conservation biologist Andrew Badgie. For more information about the annual Frog and Toad Survey or to sign up for a survey route, visit dnrwisconsin.gov and search for the Amphibians and Reptiles page. Andrew Badgie, thank you so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz. Thanks for having me, Brian. This Thursday marks the anniversary of the day that Chicago stockyard workers won the eight-hour day back in 1918. The victory was attained through union solidarity, a strike threat, a wartime labor shortage, and federal intervention. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Thursday, March 30th, is the anniversary of the day the Chicago stockyard workers won the eight-hour day in 1918. Victory was won by determined effort, but there were unique conditions, including wartime labor shortages, the backing of the Chicago Federation of Labor, CFL, the help of great radical organizers, black-white racial unity, and the federal 
government intervention. The eight-hour day was seized by the workers against the backdrop of war. When World War I broke out, demand for meat soared, but packing houses lacked workers because immigration dropped and young men went off to war. Later, the boll weevil attacked the cotton crop, and desperate African Americans migrated north, 50,000 coming to Chicago. African Americans working in meatpacking exploded from 3% to 25% of the workforce. Spontaneous strikes erupted in the packing houses in 1916-1917, led by non-union Eastern Europeans. AFL's amalgamated meat cutters stood on the sidelines, still interested only in skilled workers. The radical syndicalist William C. Foster, the leader of the Chicago Railroad District and a former IWW organizer, had a crew of fellow radicals. Having organized 12 craft rail unions to work together, they advocated similar approaches in other industries. Foster and company went to the Chicago Federation of Labor, CFL, that was led by a militant, John Fitzpatrick. He supported mass organizing and meatpacking and steel, launched the Labor Party, and supported organizing by women teachers and clerical workers. The CFL voted unanimously to support a resolution to organize the packing house workers and establish the Stockyard Labor Council, SLC, on July 23rd. 1917. The CFL, the Fed, paid the initial expenses of SLC organizers and financed the first mass meeting of 10,000 workers on September 9th, but few joined the union. However, by November, the movement gained strength with concrete demands of equal pay for women in the eight-hour day. Many joined up, especially foreign-born workers. In a single month, 10,000 Poles and Lithuanians joined. By December, skilled workers were joining. The union movement had a strong foothold with 90% membership, but 12,000 blacks were unable to join due to craft unions' exclusion of African Americans. So, the SLC reluctantly pushed for separate locals for black. Eventually, other African Americans joined the more conservative amalgamated. They disliked their subordinate position, but they were in the same local with whites. The SLC hired more black organizers. The atmosphere was aided by the election of A.K. Fudel, a black butcher, as VP of the CFL. Organizing was slow because of the different experiences among rural and urban blacks. Some institutions in the black community opposed unions, churches, and some in the black press. Packing houses hired more blacks, assuming they could be more easily dissuaded from unionizing. Packing houses gave money to black churches and black organizations like the YWCA and the Urban League to persuade them to dissuade their members from the union cause. In late 1917, the Libby McNeil Company fired 60 unionists. By this time, organizing had spread to other cities, so the radicals thought they had momentum. A strike vote was held the night before Thanksgiving. The vote empowered the leadership to call a strike, but the leadership was divided. The amalgamated felt bound by wartime no-strike pledges. The CFL leader Fitzpatrick thought the vote was premature, but the question became moot in December when the U.S. Secretary of War ordered a mediation commission to defuse the situation. The AFL unions embraced the government arbitration, but Foster and the radicals had their doubts. The arrangement did not include union recognition, but Foster played a big role in the arbitration. Judge Samuel Altscheller heard testimony from packing house workers, wives and children, and representatives of the companies, but the focus was on ordinary workers. It was as if the characters in the jungle had come to life, come to share their stories in the witness chair, said William Foster later. The workers' attorney, Welsh, 
establish the justice of the workers' cause, and that the companies could well afford the workers' demands. The hearings received a lot of media attention. One headline blared, Life's Hardships Told by Women in the Stockyards. One lived in Chicago for six years, never saw a movie, a park, or Lake Michigan. Three weeks later, after the hearings concluded, the judge settled in favor of the workers, awarding them an eight-hour day, a guaranteed 48-hour week, Overtime pay raises an equal pay for women and men. The workers celebrated a great victory, and their unions continued to grow. But the companies refused to recognize the unions, and later judicial rulings were less favorable. However, within two years, the victory was undone by internal union divisions, the superior financial power of the packing companies, the race riots of 1919, and the end of federal judicial intervention. The lessons of Chicago were internalized in the 30s by the CIO, which managed to build permanent industrial unions with blacks and whites, despite great differences coming together. But that is a story for another day. For the past is a pastime, Harry Richardson. While spring is technically still here, we are in Wisconsin, and over the weekend we saw a record amount of snow hit the ground in Madison. And unfortunately, there is more on the way, though thankfully it shouldn't stick around too long. WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis has more on what we can expect in the forecast this week. From happy spring to oh Christmas tree, oh Christmas tree. Madison fooled us into thinking spring was finally here with the warmer temperatures we felt outside earlier last week. For some Madisonians, it was even back to t-shirt and shorts weather, but not anymore. A whopping snowstorm came Friday into Saturday that surpassed the expected 36 inches of accumulation. In fact, the Dane County Regional Airport received 12.1 inches of snow in 9 hours, which is a new record, beating the previous record set March 18, 1971, Madison saw 12 inches of snow. Thankfully, due to the warmer temperatures we saw throughout the day on Saturday, the snow began to melt, making this week a commute a bit easier, but we will likely be seeing those huge mounts of snow in the parking lots in Madison for a bit longer. Although it would be great to hear that this was the last snow that we will see, it doesn't seem like that will be likely, at least with the temperatures that we will be seeing this week. Current temperatures are sitting at right around 40 degrees, with light winds blowing from the east at 4 miles per hour. The humidity is sitting at 54%, and we are seeing some very big cloudy skies. With the combination of light winds and cloud coverage, it's making temperatures feel shy of 40 degrees. Overnight is going to be dropping into the upper 20s with continued partly cloudy skies and mild winds. The humidity will be increasing into the 70th percentile. Tuesday is looking to have an increase in temperature. The high is looking to reach the upper 40s. With very big cloudy skies and light winds, the temperatures will be feeling a bit cooler. The UV index is looking to reach 4, which is in the low risk category, and with cooler temperatures, it's likely you won't be outside tanning. But in case you're a brave Madisonian wearing a t-shirt or shorts, be sure to protect yourself with some sunscreen. Cover your ears if you dislike cold temperatures and snow because Tuesday night, there is a possibility for some snow coming our way. The low will be dropping into the 20s with a combination of high humidity making favorable conditions for some snow. Light winds will continue into the night, making it feel much colder than those mid to high 20 degree temperatures that we will be seeing. Moving into Wednesday, we will still likely be seeing that snow from Tuesday. Morning temperatures will be cool and there will be light and variable winds. Wednesday will be mostly cloudy with highs reaching the mid 30s, but with the combination of wind and high cloud coverage, temperatures will be feeling very cool. 
so make sure you're wearing your winter jacket and even some boots to keep you warm. Wednesday night will drop into the teens with light and variable winds and high cloud coverage, but we should be taking a break from the snow. Can't say the same about Thursday, though. Rain and snow will be present in the morning, starting with rain, then likely moving towards snow in the afternoon. Winds will be higher than the rest of the week, blowing between 10 to 15 miles per hour with even higher wind gusts. The high is looking to reach the upper 40s, but will feel cooler with the wind and clouds. Thursday night won't be dropping too low, still looking to stay in the 40s. There will be steady rain earlier in the evening and a possibility for some thunderstorms later in the evening. Those high winds will still continue into the night. Friday is looking to continue with thunderstorms in the morning from the overnight hours. The high will be just shy of 50 degrees, but again, feeling the consistent pattern of cool real field temperatures due to the 10 to 20 mile per hour winds and cloud coverage. Rain and snow will continue into the evening and high winds. As of now, snow accumulation on Friday is looking to be less than an inch, but as we learned this weekend, that can quickly change. For college students, spring break just took place. And for younger students, spring breaks are happening now. But where is the spring and snow? I know personally, waking up in the morning and anticipating nice spring weather, then seeing my windows frosted with snow definitely is not a great feeling. Just like me, many Madison residents feel the same. I visited UW-Madison campus and the west side of Madison and asked a few residents how they feel about waking up on a spring morning and seeing snow. And here's what they had to say. Sam Wright. It was definitely a surprise. I was not expecting to get 12 inches on the ground, but I was very happy to see that a lot of it was already melted when I woke up. So that was great. Howdy. Well, if it wasn't for my Polish class, I wouldn't leave my house. Uh, Julia. Uh, it kind of makes me feel really depressed, to be honest with you, because, um, you know, I think we all want to see the sun. You know, a lot of us are just really tired of the gloomy weather. So I hope that it gets better. My name is Gabriel. Uh, when it's snowing during spring, it makes me just want to stay inside and not go outside and just pretend it's not snowing. Lauren Elias, painfully disappointed. And I question why I go to school here. <laughs> I know waking up to cars struggling to get out of parking spaces snowplows scraping the snow off the roads, and my apartment feeling much cooler than it should doesn't really give me that spring feeling. Waking up knowing I don't have to wear a long sleeve, a sweatshirt, and a jacket just to make me not shiver makes it feel like spring to me. With hopeful thinking for warm weather in the future here in Madison, I'm Caitlin Davis for WORT News. Today, featured contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies on the small screen. First is a beautifully animated kids movie called The Magician's Elephant. Then it's a well-done satire from Spain on an old theme, a clash of egos on the movie set, called Official Competition. One question. Careful. My sister. How do I find her? Follow the magician's elephant. That was a clip from the trailer for a beautifully animated tale, The Magician's Elephant, by first-time director Wendy Rogers. It's based on a Newbery Prize-winning book of the same name by Kate D. Camelo. The screenwriter is Martin Hines of Toy Story 4, and it reportedly takes off some of the grim post-war edges of the kids' book. But what remains is a winning, thoughtful story of a young boy in search of his sister and how he needs to accept help to achieve his goal. Peter, voiced by Noah Ju, is a young orphan being raised by an austere, disabled veteran, the great Mandy Patinkin, as Vilna. Vilna believes it is a hard, cold, cruel world out there and tries to pass that on to Peter. But Peter doesn't remember the war where he lost his sister. 
Vilna tells him his sister is dead, but Peter remembers holding her tiny body in his arms and doesn't quite believe it. One day, in the Baltese town square, where he is supposed to buy a small fish and hard bread to keep him hard and hungry, he is distracted by a colorful tent of a fortune teller and walks in. The fortune teller, Natasha Dimitri, is our wry narrator parts the boy from his money, but gently guides him to get the best possible answer for his solitary coin. After careful thought, the boy asks, how do I find my sister? To which she gives a seemingly nonsensical answer, follow the elephant, which is where things really get interesting. The boy wants to believe, despite his caretaker's harsh rebuke, that there is an elephant out there and that he will find his sister. The next day, a hapless, failed magician, voiced by the always winning Benedict Wong, meaning to make some flowers appear, gets something much stranger. An elephant drops from the ceiling, crushing the legs of a wealthy older woman who has reluctantly been persuaded to come on stage. He has somehow tapped into the magic that the town once beheld everywhere, but went away when the war came. The elephant is promptly captured and held by the countess who never laughs, Kirby Howell Baptiste. The magician is held in jail. Peter is offered the job of caring for the elephant, but he wants to use it to find his sister. Enter the king, who wants only to be entertained. Asif Menvi. The king tells Peter he can have the elephant if he can complete three impossible tasks. He gets a valuable assist from his downstairs neighbor, a captain of the guard, Brian Tyree Henry. Peter accepts the challenge, and this makes for some very fun, thoughtful scenes. We even get to see things from the elephant's point of view. All in all, a well-done movie, well worth watching. It just started showing on Netflix. Up next, another film on the small screen. This one filled with three egotistical characters. I always do my own stance, you know what I mean? Always. Que pajero. Idiota. Ignorante. Aterrada. That was a clip from the trailer for Official Competition directed by Mariano Cohn and Gaston Dupre. It's a hilarious satire of movie making, a frequent subject of films, but this one is well written with a great over-the-top cast. Penelope Cruz plays Lola, a self-absorbed director dedicated to a process that drives her actors crazy, but also has been wildly successful in Spain. She is approached by a millionaire who just turned 80 and wants to leave a legacy, a great film that he helped create by financing it. So he contacts Lola and says he bought the rice at great expense to a best-selling book that he hasn't read. Lola explains the story and her version of a free interpretation of the book. She changes the ending. The book is a story of two brothers divided by a great tragedy. The millionaire wants the best actors in his movie. Lola explains she doesn't know what best actor means, but she has in mind the best actors for this role of two brothers at war with each other. Felix Rivara, Anthony Banderas, a world-renowned popular actor who's received a lot of awards. Ivan Torres, Oscar Martinez, is a stage actor, a method actor, who takes great stock in his craft and feigns interest in awards. Lola sets up a weird tryout with both actors present to work off each other, and once they start rehearsal, each scene is more convoluted and over-the-top than the next, but it's all held together by the charismatic interplay among the three actors. Lola wants them to use the energy of their clashing styles and personalities in their roles as two rival brothers, but she gets more than she bargained for. Any sensible person would have bailed on the project even before Felix and Ivan are asked to sit under a rock held aloft by a crane, but these aren't ordinary sensible people. They are artists full of ego 
all in all, a highly enjoyable movie that just started playing on Hulu. It's in Spanish with English subtitles. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Helena White. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brian Standing with the 8 o'clock buzz, and Nicholas Leet with technical production. Victor Calzoni introduced the show, Nate Wiggyhout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, John K. Wilson. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcast, Spotify, and wherever else you listen. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night. <laughs>